Welcome to the Science of Beers podcast with me, Mick McGee. I love having proper conversations with intelligent people, especially over beer, and that's exactly what this podcast is. We'll cover a new topic each week and get to know the scientific process. Join us with a beer and let's cheers to science. This week I have the pleasure of joining Thomas Bull for a virtual beer. Thomas is in Copenhagen and I am in Ireland. Thomas is a philosopher, a teacher, a musician. He's arranged a bunch of cultural events and festivals. Here we go. First of all, Thomas, you're you're doing a PhD at the Copenhagen Business School. Yeah, is that right? That's true. Uh, and one one thing that I'm aware of, whenever you're not doing that PhD, you're you're also the front man in a in a punk band. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's true. I sing in 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 a twula, which is a really strange name to pronounce in English. Twula. <laughs> yeah, twula. Yeah. Okay. What, what what does it mean? Um. It's uh, as a noun. It's uh, it's the word you use for someone who's doubting or someone who's in doubt. A a tvula is a person who doubts. Okay. And um, yeah, that's basically it. it. It can also just be a more processual thing. But doubting in in the sense where they're always skeptical, or doubting in the more positive sense of, of science and questioning things. I mean, I guess that depends on the timber, <laughs> but but I, th- I think we, we took it much more as a sort of almost like an existential kind of doubt, like when we're not really certain about anything. So it's not just about questioning. It's also about not really having this uh, foothold in life, not being absolutely sure of who you are or where you're going and not really having these things fleshed out so it's more of, of a of a sort of deep founded uncertainty well, um well i yeah. i know that your the, the album that's coming out is called ego so so i think yeah. the, those two names go very well together you know the the ego the ego can be very much in doubt of itself yeah. whether the ego is aware of it or not yeah so yeah and then and i also think that <clears throat> just picking up on that line i think it's it's one of the things that we wanted to emphasize with the, that title of the album is sometimes the ego is also a way of, I guess, assuaging for some of the anxiety of uncertainty. So you can you can build all these walls of certainty and 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 pretend to be sort of in the know and and I, I guess like come off as like really self-confident but while deep down you're still like shit what's going on yeah, having that sort of sense of being lost basically yeah the, the the more the more i experience the more i think that's that's totally true we're all just making making it up as we go along sort <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of paving while we go <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't, what it's it's three o'clock in ireland uh where i'm calling from i don't know whether you're you're on the beer yet or not? You are okay. Well, I, I am. It. I'm going to crack up a crack open a a tin of a tin of Guinness here. I'm going for a. It's a India Pale Ale. 
but I see it's a Danish brand. So there you go. We have Denmark and Ireland coming together through through beers. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> so I'm I'm super curious to hear hear about the the, the PhD then, Thomas. Sure. Um, I think it's always tricky to figure out where to start. Um, so I've, I thought I'd start by spelling out my ways into it to begin with. I, I, have, a, I have a master's degree in philosophy, so I'm interested in ideas and concepts. So that's one way of approaching what I'm studying, which is ecology of culture. Um, second, uh, I am at a department called Department of Organization. So what we do there is study organized phenomenon in all kinds of ways. So we have people working with taxation, tax evasion, and people working with the oil industry and marine industries and people working with dirty jobs and the military. So all kinds of organized phenomenon. So I'm looking at culture as an organized phenomenon um, and specifically looking at it in terms of what I call uh, ecological organization or thinking about a regional cultural life as an organized phenomenon across various organizations. I can give you some examples in a few. And then the final uh, or the third way into it is, um, is, is by my background as a musician, as a practicing artist and, and also I, I did a lot of cultural organizing, so I put on festivals and theatrical performances and all kinds of events and, and worked with that for 10 years before starting the PhD. So I sort of also had that practical experience with me. Um, so a combination of practical experience and conceptual interest in culture and how to think about culture. Um, and then sort of mediated by the idea of organization. Um, so that's the framework. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at, or maybe that's interesting, we have a map. So I'm looking at this, this region here. So, so we're looking at a map here of Zealand, uh, the island that holds yeah. Copenhagen, and you're, you're looking at north center Zealand. Yeah, northwestern, northwestern, northwestern part of Zealand. That's an, that's an, uh, a region called Ullshel in Danish, which, um, which is actually called the the Shire, <laughs> translated. Perfect. <laughs> Almost. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a province that has always been uh, rural or, or provincial. Um, and I'm looking at that region. It's 33,000 people living there. So are, are, and are, are then we from, from that area? I'm, I'm just south of the region. Yeah. Like uh, I can't really claim to be a local in that sense, but I'm I'm just south of it, so um, so I know it, and and it's it's an interesting region because by summer you have a lot of people there for the second homes, there it, the 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 population grows by a hundred thousand people during summer. Maybe not this summer, unfortunately, but, but. Uh, no 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, so I'm looking at this region in terms of how is culture organized and uh, how is culture organized as a, you could call it a, ma a macroscopic or, or maybe like what I call an ecological 
system. And by calling it a system, you also think about it in terms of differentiation. So you have a theater that produces theatrical offerings. You have a library that's in the business of literature. And you have a museum that's in the, the business of cultural heritage and visual arts and so on and so forth. So all the recognized art forms and newer art forms, they exist side by side and uh, organized. Most of them are publicly funded organizations. Mm -hmm. So there are various ways in which these organizations are, um, are working in agreement with the municipality, often regulated by some law, like the law of theater or the law of libraries and so on and so forth. Um, and then besides the public cultural institutions and self-governing organizations, you also have the, the commercial organizations that produce cultural offerings. So that could be, uh, for instance, a, um, a, uh, and a small organization that's actually uh, like a, a ceramics place, but they put on this huge uh, um, show, like music show once a year, but they do it completely on commercial basis. Mm -hmm. You have a huge uh, festival, the largest in the region, and they count, I think, 11,000 visitors. It's like a music festival. And they are also purely commercial. So that's sort of the, the, the second group. And then you have the third group, which is the, the homegrown or the civil society, non-commercial, non-organized, at least not in any uh, legal sense. So that's the skateboard kids and the people who do street art. and the Underground. Yeah, sort of the under the radar type thing. And, and, and some of it becomes recognizable, like the, the, all the kids who do parkour, they sort of become organized on their own terms. And then suddenly they sort of become part of the public institutions that want to sustain what they're doing or help them or also wanted to, to put it on their roster. Um, so you have these three domains, like public culture, commercial culture and civil society culture. And if you look at, at these as, as an integrated system, then what it is, it, it's all of a sudden like a highly differentiated cultural expression. Yeah. You have all kinds of ways of, of doing and enjoying and producing culture. Well, I'm, I'm super curious about the, the state-funded culture and then the not state-funded culture. And I, and I have specific experience of this myself in Nuanza where I, I, I do work with some, you could call them underground genres of, say, techno. And and then I've also looked for for, for, for funding. So I've experience of it both uh, with, with and without funding. Yeah. And then I have uh, more experience with other projects and I've been to many projects that have state funding. But I noticed that the, the entrance price for like student uh -huh. target group audience underground genres of music they're the same you know so if you have state yeah. funding the the entrance price it's it's still like less than a, a hundred kroners but with the state funding they're able to pay the the artists so so they're they don't yeah. really worry about their overheads so uh -huh. along comes an independent organizer and wants to do something independently yeah. But in order just to cover the basics, that, that ticket price has to be three times as much. Yeah. 
And then the people, they're why would I pay three times more than that? I can just go to this this other event for a hundred countries. And and I think it's my own personal opinion that that it it's it's it could be a very dangerous thing actually the the, the state funding. Uh, yeah. And if if I can add to that, I also have the experience of coming from Northern Ireland, and say for example, punk and techno, they're they're huge genres. In Belfast, you could call them. They're not really underground anymore. They're massive events, uh-huh. and they're the, the the people want to go, and the, and the, the the audience, say the the student age target group, that they're willing to pay the equivalent of three four times the price of a pint locally to go there. Uh-huh. Whereas uh-huh. over in Denmark, it's pay, paying the price equivalent to one pint. <laughs> Is a big ask, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I don't know if I have a, have a specific question there, really. <laughs> but, but uh, are you looking into the effect of state funded culture on non state funded culture? In a sense, yeah. It's not one of the primary objectives, but it's definitely in there. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that struck me when I started looking into these things was that. Um, I needed to look into sort of the more historical background um, to get a sense of things. And that drew me on to or made me look into basically the history of cultural policy in Denmark uh, and in the northern countries in general, where you the first I think the first minister of culture and the, the first cultural ministry was in the 60s, early 60s. And sort of just roughly sketching the that history is that in the beginning you had an idea that culture was uh, something that both expressed a people but at the same time it was also uh, something that should be for a people both in terms of um, giving people access to fine arts and, and enable them to appreciate fine arts and at the same time, you should also give people the opportunity to access more sort of popular arts. So the the, the system of public support or state funding uh, always pursued these differentiated paths. So you would you would support like the the royal theater or the ballet, for instance, but you would also develop what they called block grants, which was this. Uh, a sum of money that the state allocated to uh, the regions or the or the counties and the municipalities for them to administer locally without with an arm's length principle so the state would give a, a bunch of money to, to for instance also that i'm looking at um, and then it would be up to the local politicians to allocate the monies mm-hmm. so th- so that became quite an interesting system of public support because underlying that idea was that um, we the idea was that local autonomy was cherished based on the idea that people know best what they want and like locally that makes sense but yeah it should still be a, a government priority to support both fine arts and crude arts or whatever you want to call it because they're all valuable in their own right and I think one of the ideas was actually that you need to also, as a as a policy matter, to ensure that there's development in culture. So you want to support uh, 
the avant-garde or the elite or the people who do experiments. And, and typically those are the people who can really live off it because it never really becomes commercial. Mm-hmm. So you can make a living of it, but you, it still takes time and effort. So to have a vibrant cultural life, the idea was to, to support these people as well. Um, and then with time, culture during the 70s becomes much more democratic. It, it became a, a priority to democratize cultural production and consumption. So you still had the arm, arm's length principle, but at the same time, there was a demand for more participation. There was a demand for more, um, also more experimental stuff, but also as a counter movement to the experimental, you also saw like more conservative movements. And cultural policy couldn't really figure out what to do with that. Conser- conservative um, movements, can you have, do you have an example of, of that? Yeah, conservative movements, I mean, it comes in, very, in various shapes. Conservative movements could be, um, for instance, within, um, within theater. So you would have all these groups working on new theatrical forms and uh, both new theatrical formats, but also new ways of, of staging theater. And then at the same time, you would have like uh, sort of old school theatrical performances and black boxes and sticking with the tradition and, and sort of sticking with the, the old ways of doing theater. Mm-hmm. And they, I guess they would just sort of be not necessarily in conflict, but they would, they would definitely be uh, in, on different ends of the spectrum. Um, and I think cultural policy was struggling with that because on the one hand, you would you would need to have a way to support popular uh, and and um, I'd call it sort of the publical theatrical forms mm-hmm. that people enjoyed and you draw a crowd. But at the same time, you would always also want to support those people who did experiments. Yeah. Like if you had a symphony orchestra having a, a Beethoven recital, you, you could sell a lot of tickets to, for that of a certain de- demographic spectrum. Exactly. But culture moves with with creativity and new things but that that they're also risky yeah and i think one of the things that happened in the 70s in terms of policy was also that you started developing these really uh complicated ideas of what good taste is so you would also have people who i think people with an, an, an an arts degree would start talking about what really good art is and what fine art is. And I, and, and I could definitely trace in the present that some of the, uh, some of the problems is, to, is, is, is drawing boundaries between uh, professional arts and so-called amateur arts or folk arts. Um, I can definitely see it within the, the, the craft the crafts and within the um, the visual arts, because that's particularly where people sell items. So they sell paintings, or they sell photography, or they sell um, ceramic works. And in that sphere, it's definitely a big issue to be able to tell the difference between what a proper artwork is and what's merely decoration, quote unquote. Um, and I think that goes back to the 70s and 60s where the, the whole idea of what is an artwork was really brought to the fore and was a really difficult question to answer. But you still needed that if you were supporting art and then you needed to sort of draw a boundary. 
and I think it's still unresolved what it is. Um, it, it's still definitely up, up for debate. Yeah, like I think everybody can agree today that that Banksy is is art. If Banksy sprays paint on a wall, they take the wall away, and it, and it's a, a piece yeah. of art. But at the end of the day, that's graffiti. Graffiti is yeah. it, it's a truly it's a spectrum. Yeah, from from really tagging a name to to beautiful beautiful art that's done illegally on a wall so yeah. that, so it's very hard to be specific whenever you're talking about spectrums yeah yeah and then then just in terms of cultural the history of cultural policy then when i guess when a lot of the neoliberal reforms and, and new government came in in the 80s and onwards there was a move within cultural policy to start thinking business strategy and art strategy together to sort of say um, art and business can benefit from each other. So maybe we should start looking into ways in which business could can, can support art, not just by buying art, but also by producing, producing things collectively or um, making art a priority in design, for instance, but also in terms of the rise of the experience economy. And so that, that whole idea of producing events uh, that, I don't know, enhances the experience of shopping in the supermarket. I mean, all these ridiculous attempts, I mean, th they come from there as well. So the, the late 80s and, and the 90s, that's when cultural policy started looking to business all of a sudden. And then at the turn of the century, all of a sudden there was this thing going on in the wake of September 11th and the, the um, I guess also the financial crisis had something to do with it, but all of a sudden there was this move within cultural policy that culture is supposed to tell us who we are. So cultural policy is about sustaining uh, the maintenance of cultural heritage and identity. So all of a sudden you would see a, a, a very conservative move in terms of of looking to cultural heritage, um, but also defining what good art is by making these uh, canons, they call them, sort of lists of good Danish art all of a sudden. Okay. That's really interesting. I mean, now, why would you want to do that? And, and I think a lot of it had to do with some idea of needing to identify what it meant to be Danish, which is kind of weird when you look at it particularly from a country that has a long history of of sort of mixed cultural backgrounds indeed and a lot of nationalism came after the recession you know so whenever the economy crashes then then people are, are quite uh, quite closed off and they look inward yeah. instead of outward so it's very interesting that this was actually reflected in the art policy you know yeah i mean just one example which i think is really interesting is it's something that I just recently discovered is that um, you you know Dansk Folkeparti, right? Yeah, I was thinking about them whenever you mentioned about the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, they uh, they did some really interesting strategic moves when they were, um, I guess they were supporting the conservative government, and when it was the social democrats in government after, after the turn of the century. They had like a 15-year period where they uh, actually managed to secure that. Just let me phrase it correctly. I'll, I'll just re they, remind the listeners that um, 
Danske Folkeparti. I would describe them as a as a very nationalistic uh, Danish uh, party. Uh, they want to they're they're in favor of closed borders and it making making it very difficult to emigrate to Denmark. Yeah, yeah. What they did was they they used cultural policy to to secure that within museum within the museum sector they would um, increase the the volume of funding for um, for museums that maintain cultural heritage, which basically was their sort of discreet way of um, sustaining that the ethnic coherence of Danishness was kept intact. So uh, answering what, what does it mean to be Danish by looking to the long stretch of cultural his, history and what did people do back in the days and what does it mean to be an agricultural society and have this language and these cultural forms of expression and so on and so forth. And they totally used cultural policy to have like an, an ethnically pure uh, agenda. And it's really discreet. And it, it doesn't really show unless you look into the numbers where you can totally see how that party supported this line of, of, of policy. Well, that's, it's so interesting. Yeah, it really is. I mean, who would who would think that people were using uh, museums to go for a nationalist agenda? But they did. Wow. Mm. Via Denmark. So <laughs> yeah. So that I mean, that's one of the things that I'm looking into in in terms of state support for culture, and I, I think it plays many roles. It's it's definitely not just one thing. It's it's it. I think one of the things that surprised me the most when I looked into this history of of cultural policy was that it it had both quite distinct ideals about uh, d- democratizing culture, making it inclusive, and you also have periods where it was all about national identity, and you also had periods where it was very very much about um, Bildung, the German word Bildung, in Danish it's Dennelse. I, I don't know this. It, it's a really tricky word because I don't think you have it in English. I mean, it's it's a form of learning. It's like spiritual development. Uh, the, when you develop taste, you also develop your mental capabilities. And when you learn difficult things, you develop as a human being. And yeah. so sort of that notion of human development was sort of part of the idea of what culture was supposed to do to us was to make us more enlightened and better people uh, well, well that's also part of it well that's uh that's a good goal to 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 go for um and usually you go to a theater you you you're you're moved your soul is moved you go to a museum you learn something new be it history or be it art that, that moves you uh yeah and I do apologize to any fans, but then there's a Rasmus Seabach concert. That... <laughs> yeah. What do you get from that? <laughs> of course, of course, I joke. But um, but so what about the the most uh, more recently? Then you, you mentioned everything up until just after the the financial crisis. So is is there a particular aspect of culture funding that you can see that has come about from the last social democratic government? Well, this is when it gets really tricky because. One of the things that I've been trying to map, what I've been doing is that I've been mapping out the cultural organization. And by mapping, I've actually, I'm quite literal in terms of first mapping where the organizations are. And then I've mapped how they are related to each other. So I've basically asked 
all the the publicly funded and some of the commercial ones and the the civic cultural forms i've asked them so who are you connected with and how and what does that this connection do for you as an organization as a cultural producer so i've mapped out that complex connectivity there is between the various cultural organizers and i did that because i wanted to see if they were somehow affected by um I was looking at the structural reform in 2007, which it sounds kind of boring when you sort of present it like that, but it was a, a, ref, a, a reform of the administrative system of Denmark that reduced the number of municipalities from 200 something to 98. So it was like a huge centralization movement. And in the region I'm looking at, you had three municipalities that became one. And that happened in 2007. So I was interested in seeing if the system of culture was affected by this reform somehow. Were they as a total system affected or if affected at all, how? And I found out, or I think I can conclude that as a total system, you can't really tell if they were affected or responded in any ways. Yeah. As a, as a whole coherent system. But if you look at the individual organizations, you have all these little points where people have become affected or it had an effect on them, these neoliberal policies of centralization and, and sustaining a more smooth operation in terms of administration. It definitely had an effect on organizations in all kinds of ways. So... I think that's really interesting because that's not about cultural policy. It's just about public administration, but it ends up affecting culture as well. I'm try- trying to think if about where I'm from. I'm from a small country town in Northern Ireland called Port of Ferry, and there's there's a nice little small town rivalries between our closest neighbours that are mm-hmm. only just a, a couple of kilometres up, up the road, and yeah. then our other closest neighbours. So we have Port of Ferry, Kirkcubbin and, and Ballygallagat and, and there's rivalry in sport there's rivalry in Friday night discos uh-huh. so I'm trying to imagine if, if suddenly those three places that see themselves as quite distinct even though there's yeah. only maybe five kilometres between them if they were yeah. suddenly forced to work together I, I imagine there would be very easily be, be tensions that come from the, the history of yeah. small town rivalry yeah. So I'm I'm just imagining I mean, I, this I, happening uh, where you I are. I can definitely recognize that. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of one of my favorite sort of tales from the field. Um, I was uh, looking into this r- small civic association that is called Drausholm Lokal Historiske Arkiv, um, which is a it's a it's a, a small association. Actually, it's quite big for the for the place but anyways it's a it's an association that specializes in maintaining an archive of one of the former municipalities it's the southernmost municipality of the three that would mer- that were merged and they meet once a week uh, they're retired folks they meet at the library and what they do is they sort through old documents they put them in order and they make an index. They take uh, a huge stack of old 
photographies and then they name each person on the photo because they know who people are. So they go through all this document material and they sort of built a local memory. And they also, and every 10, every 10 years, they go to all the cemeteries uh, in the, in that region. And then they take pictures of all the tombstones and then they update the list of who's buried where. So you can call from the U S and be like, I'm looking for my family and they will be like, yep, we know where he's buried. He's out there. And they, they used to say that, or they, they told me in the interview that, um, if you know, if you want to know what someone had done, you don't need to call the police. You can just ask us (laughs) because they, they know everything. Right. But they said that the, um, during the reform, they were asked to merge with other local uh, archives. And they were like, nope, we don't want to do that. Yeah. We're strictly local and that's, that's where we belong. And we, we don't mind the other ones, but we definitely don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think you can definitely recognize, and there are other examples of this sort of small place against another small place. This, um, it's definitely there. That makes sense. But, but the interesting thing is, when you look to the level of um, the public organizations, they're totally past that. They don't have any uh, any f- fidelity to all the regional borders. They're like a, a a regional, entirely regional organization. So the theater, it's like for the entire region and so on and so forth. But obviously, the old borders of the old territories are all over the place still yeah yeah i definitely recognize that from from where i'm from Uh, so i'm also curious then about the about but the economy for for those institutions that are funded from the state is the state looking at you know because the the state gives a lot of money to theater for example it goes into paying paying artists or or just the running of the the theater and then you know, that money will be spent, taxes will come back around. Are, are they looking into this circularity of the economy whenever they're, they're, they're giving funding? I think it's, I, I don't, I don't know for sure. I mean, I think that the, I think the idea of circularity is there somehow, like you described, it's like a whole system of economic circulation. Um, I think at some point they were also just supporting culture because they thought that it was a good thing in itself, that it was building civil society and that was good. Um, so I, I guess it, it's definitely a question of who's in power. I mean, who's in political power in terms of what kind of ideological thinking they subscribe to. But definitely, I mean, In Denmark, you, I was just today looking into the, um, the laws that are regulating um, what's called a, a regional theater. So if you are a regional theater, you have to live up to a set of criteria. And one of them is that you need to be uh, locally embedded. And you also need to do two novel theatrical productions per year. And then you get a... Um, state support um which is kind of tricky but it's worth sort of fleshing out how it works so the 
the municipality will pay, uh, for instance, four million Danish kroner to a regional theater. And then the, um, the state will um, reimburse the municipality 50% of that grant to the theater. So the municipality will be paying out of its own pocket, so to speak, and then the state will reimburse them. So I'm, I'm like, why is this system even in place? I mean, why is this, why is this working this way? It sounds complicated. Yeah, it sounds complicated, but also just like, why would you want to support uh, culture in this way? I mean, why would you even want to uh, set up an entire system for supporting culture? Why don't you just let people run it on their own? Uh, and I, th- I think one of the main reasons is actually uh, a deep concern with what happens to people if there is no cultural infrastructure, if there is no cultural system, both in terms of the cultural identity, the regional identity, but also this idea that it's good for us to be surrounded by beautiful things or exciting things, that culture is basically just good for us as people. So... And I'm I'm constantly looking for these sort of hidden motives. Yeah. Because the skepticism is like but what are they up the to? More, yeah, what are they up to? But the more I look into it, the more I'm like, God damn it. I mean, it actually seems quite genuine at some points that people honestly believe that it will make a better society if we support culture. Not just to differentiate us from all the rest, but also because it just somehow works to make people better. I think that's quite an exciting idea, actually. Um, it 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 sure is, yeah. And and I mean, also coming for me, I, I totally identify as an anarchist. So I'm like, oh, I should be really, you know, mad at this system and be like, just burn everything down. And I'm <laughs> like, so it it's it's sort of the point where data is like looking you deep into your eyes and be like. You got to reconsider some of your priorities, mate. Well, well, this is the thing. If the funding wasn't there, there would be there would be people um, that would just be pushing to create things I- instead. Yeah. And it, it, because of how much, I say, a symphony orchestra costs, uh, yeah. the people that are pushing those unfunded things would be more underground, I would imagine. But yeah. but it's, it also brings me to what is the measure of of success with regards a, a piece of culture? Because I, I've been to a symphony with a few hundred people who've enjoyed the evening, clapped accordingly. But then I've been to an event where there's maybe 30 people and, and a couple of them are are so moved by a piece of music that the tears are, are tripping down their faces, you know? Yeah. So so yeah. I would say one of those bits of culture has moved somebody uh, to the point where their their life could be changed. And they, yeah. they, they will go through an unforgettable experience yeah, where the other just might go back to the symphony next month. So it's very difficult to measure the impact of culture on on a person, you know, because yeah. it's it's very subjective what they, what they're into, uh, yeah. and, and then what to get out of it. Totally. I mean, I don't think you can measure it. Yeah, I think it's unmeasurable. But but I definitely think that culture makes a, a huge difference. I mean, just imagine if you if you took it away. Um, well, how, well how we're 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 here. We're here we're right here. now. We're 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 yeah. we're in it. Yeah, and it's it's yeah, uh, it it's it's really difficult, actually. You know, yeah. uh, I, I've I've enjoyed to 
go onto YouTube to experience some some concerts or Facebook Live concerts or theater on, on YouTube. Um, but uh, but I, I I think a lot of people are, are really feel that they're they're missing a huge part of uh, enjoyment from life by by not being able to go out and experience the their chosen form of culture. Yeah, I think one of the things that's been that struck me quite a lot, and it, this also connects with a, I guess, a more methodological question about um, how much of our knowledge and our experience is is um, is embodied, basically. That a lot of the the artistic experiences, a lot of the ecstatic experiences that we have, are uh, are embodied. So imagine to imagine that we can sort of replace those experiences by looking at a screen is is almost like ridiculous because it sure you can read a book and you can also watch a film on your screen and and you will ha- still have that embodied experience but live music uh, the performative arts looking at uh, visual art there are so many forms of aesthetic experience that are embodied. And I think what a lot of people are experiencing is that the body is totally out of the picture now in terms of experiencing these things. And I think that's that's a form of uh, privation. I mean, you definitely have a sense that something is missing here. Yeah. Um, so, so for me, that's also a really good indicator of the need for uh, aesthetic spaces that that our societies also need they need spaces that are devoted to aesthetics because apparently it's something that we appreciate even if we can't agree on what kind of aesthetics are nice and what aren't and and taste also becomes critical in this sense but still like just the basic idea that you should have aesthetic spaces as an infrastructure that's just as important as a highway 10,000 years ago, we're living in caves. We still painted them. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it couldn't be good for your current PhD whenever all cultures close down for the foreseeable future. No, it wouldn't be good. <laughs> no, no, no. That must be quite difficult to, to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, personally, I was... Luckily, I had all... I had all my field data. Ah, in, okay. In, so now it's just, like, so I, just the writing? Yeah, it's just wrapping up and writing the final ones. But I mean, I have I have colleagues who who were in the middle of doing their field work and people who were prevented from interviewing or doing all kinds of observation data, and that's really hard. So there's definitely science that's completely prevented from doing what it's doing. Um, so yeah, a, this is a really tricky. It's a tricky one indeed. Yeah, oh, Thomas. So you're busy with a PhD. You're you're busy with the the release of your your new punk album, Ego. But I noticed whenever I was stalking you earlier on that you you were part of something that sounds brilliant, and it was called Oops Festival. <laughs> yeah, the, the, a, mis, a festival of mistakes. Yes, that sounds fantastic. Uh, t- tell yeah. us about that, please. Sure. I mean, Oops. The festival for failure and fuck ups was, <laughs> it was it was it was basically what the name sounds like. It it was a festival that um, was cross aesthetic. So we had theater and music and and, and cooking and 
um, lectures and film. And what we wanted to do was to create a festival space that, I guess, celebrated failure as both a, a human condition, but also looked into various kinds of failures and explore what it means to fail. Um, and f we had all kinds of experiences. And one thing that runs through it as a red thread is that it's easy to celebrate the idea that we need to fail fast and fail often to develop, but to own your own failures is really hard. So we had this really interesting tension between the, the pain of failing and the idea that failing is good. So that's one tension that we explored. And another one is that uh, failure is fun. Because, I mean, there's so many hilarious stories about people failing in all kinds of ways. And sometimes when people die, it's even fun. I mean, if it's a scientist who dies from an experiment, it's fun. I mean, <laughs> it sounds hard, but there, I mean, there are so many ways in which you'd laugh at failure, even if it's also like terrible. Yeah. So well, that's like, the like, second yeah, part. Yeah. Like, like I'm thinking about famous uh, examples from science would be the discovery of penicillin. Yeah, Alexander that's a classic. Fleming just yeah. was a very unclean and unkept gentleman. Yeah. Uh, he noticed yeah. some some fungi growing, uh, and uh, well, well, yeah. Was was it was it the the penicillin prevented the like growth around the the spores? I think it was something like that. I know we have yeah. penicillin, so that's uh, yeah. But also, um, imagine like. Uh, the, how, how bitter it must be to be the person who turned away uh, J.K. Rowling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and there was a few who did that. I mean, and, and so, so you have all these famous instances of, of people like fucking up like immensely in terms of recognizing something that they have should appreciate it but didn't or didn't understand or something. So there's so many ways in which failure works. For instance, one thing that touched me quite a lot this year, when we did the festival, it was two years ago. Um, we had a uh, you had a, a soldier who who was wounded in Afghanistan, and just at the start of his tour, um, and his story was a story of having to recover and figure out how to live with the the wounds that he that he had um so that was a story about a, a body that was basically failing him in terms of what he expected it to be able to perform and so that was just not so that wasn't one of the fun parts it was more like moving but i think that really fleshed out that that failure often also has to do with expectations mm -hmm. But failure also often teaches us something about um, not just our own expectations, but also it it broadens our idea of what we can do. So I think that the, the field of failure, if you look at failure, you also need to look at what is called uh, post-trauma growth. Is that when people have lived through uh, really harsh things or traumatic experiences, they actually sometimes end up having better lives i, I i'm thinking about a, a good example that also has to do with uh, body uh mutilation 
And I'm thinking about the guitarist Tony Lomi uh-huh. of Black Sabbath. He got his finger mm-hmm. cut off in a in a in a factory and invented the power chord uh, <laughs> that went on to create heavy metal music and, and punk music. You know, yeah. so if it wasn't for that mistake, that uh, that horrible thing that happened to him, yeah. we, we the, these uh, these creative industries wouldn't wouldn't uh, well we would have came around a different way. But that that's a that's a, a fun story, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a discharge of at least it's one of these Midlands um, punk bands from um, from the eighties who who developed sort of the D beat. Basically, because they couldn't play the drums fast enough, so the way in which they played fast became a style of its own. Yeah, is, I like that. Shortcomings become style expressions. I think that's pretty cool. Brilliant. It it, it happens so much in in music, you know. I think the the, the field drum machine Roland 808 from Japan that yeah. was meant to be used to substitute for uh, drummers in in funk recordings was then yeah. picked up by. Uh, some poor kids on the streets of Chicago and turned into techno. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I think, and you have that story all the time. And then within the sort of the framework of, of what we're talking about and the research I'm doing, I can definitely tell that it, it's, it's happening all the time that fuck ups and mistakes and things that didn't really turn out the way they were supposed to, um, they, they bring new things. Well, I think there's, there's an, an inherent problem though. And in science, uh, I was studying biology, you know, and, and you set out uh, with a hypothesis, you know, I, I think this has a role in that and it comes back, the results come back and there's no effect. Yeah. That's not published. The no nope. effect is not published. Only the things that, that are, that are interesting things that, uh, oh, we found the reason that this, this has this effect. They're published, yeah. but all of these other experiments go unpublished. But that's still science. That's still information that somebody further on down the road could use, so that they don't repeat those same mistakes. Yeah. So there's a huge problem, I think, in the world of science to not get these things published. Yeah. Yeah. The the thing that we don't publish negative results. Exactly. It's horrible. Um, that there's I can't remember her name, but there's a professor somewhere who has she made her CV publicly available and she made her cv one of failure so it's like a cv of, of her professional failures all the, the the research that went wrong and all the things that messed up and i think that's a really interesting story in terms of looking at a professor who's obviously achieved um and then sort of review how much fucking up it had to she had to go through in order to get where she was at because if you only estimate uh, the career of, of a professor by looking at what they managed to publish, it it doesn't really tell the whole story of all the stuff they had to endure that was basically just uncertainty and fucking up. So I, I completely agree that it's, it's a huge problem. And one of the problems is that, I don't know how it is in your end of the world, but here we, we definitely have this word excellence excellence in research what so what does that mean i mean it, it could mean flawlessness right it can easily be interpreted as just getting it right every time but it could also mean that excellence is the ability to um use all your failures creatively and to learn from them 
So you can all you, you can start to look at excellence as a, as a definitely as a contested uh, topic. I mean, what does it mean to be excellent? I, think, I would I say it, that it means fucking up a lot. I think it's very very suspicious in in the world of science if you hear the word flawless or, or excellence. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. mm, I don't know really. Where, where did, <laughs> show me all your all your other uh, show me your raw data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and also uh, it's like the that's I think that's why scientists can sometimes be really difficult to uh, interview if it's for like short uh, radio uh, what do you call it radio spots or like short two minute interviews and so because most scientists are like yeah but now nah, I'm not entirely sure and I mean there are uncertainties and they all you also have there's all these caveats that you need to make. Um, and all this, all the while they're being asked to be really specific and say something that is a truth with some kind of explanatory power. So you have this tension about what's expected of a scientist and the world of science is much more like processual and you can't really say much for sure. And yeah, so that's definitely a tension. Indeed. Indeed. So it it takes people like you to embrace failures and and make a festival out of it. So so more of that, and then perhaps uh, mistakes will be more embraced by the wider the wider culture. Yeah, uh, that'd be fine. Thomas, it's it's been wonderful chatting to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for for, for joining me for a Friday afternoon beer. Uh, uh, that's cool. I'm looking forward to getting back to Denmark and looking forward to seeing uh, Svila on the road. Promoting their, their new album, Ego. So, yeah, cool, cool. Cheers again. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Bye.